This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. This is the Relic Radio Show with another 60 minutes of radio drama as we do every Tuesday at RelicRadio.com. Don't forget, if you'd like to help support this and all of the Relic Radio shows, you can visit Donate.RelicRadio.com or click on one of the links while you're on the website. Your support makes all of this happen. Thank you, as always, to those who have. This week, we're going to begin with High Adventure. Hear their story from December 20th, 1980, titled Silent Night, Deadly Night. After that, it's Adventure with Andrea from Rocky Jordan. That one aired September 11th, 1949. For most people, Christmas is a time of warm family reunions, parties, and a chance to celebrate the fundamentals of Christianity. But not everyone's that lucky, as in tonight's story by Roger Service, which he calls Silent Night, Deadly Night. Evening, Sparks. Evening, Skipper. Uh, anything interesting coming through? Uh, oh, the rest for wardroom steward O'Donoghue. Oh, what? Uh, he's the father of a bouncing boy. Eight pounds, two ounces. Well done, that man. Anything else? Oh, well, half a dozen personal messages for crewmen, sir. Nothing for the bridge. I don't know what the ruddy navy is coming to. Admiralty signals for the benefit of ordinary seamen. Begging your pardon, sir. You could hardly call anyone on board vigilant ordinary. <laughs> Point taken, Sparks. But I still think some of the Navy's traditions are dying a little too easily. <laughs> Perhaps you're right, sir. You know, when I was a boy, going to sea meant just that. Going to sea. No contact with friends and family for months on end. None of this molly coddling you get today. Well, I dare say in those days, no one would have believed we'd elect a female prime minister either. At least said about that. <laughs> uh, bridge radio? Uh, yes, he is. It's for you, sir. Chief Engineer Robbins. Oh, thanks. Yes, Chief? Can we be sure about this? I see. When can we be certain? Uh, I'll stay right here. Let me know as soon as you can. Anything wrong, Skipper? I can't be sure for the moment, Sparks, but the Chief's just reported a warning signal from the engine room. Fire hazard, sir? Nothing rather worse than that, I'm afraid. Unless we have a malfunction of the automatic alarm system, we have a full-blown radiation leak from the reactor. Radiation leak? Shall I sound the emergency procedure alarm, sir? No, not yet. However well-drilled a crew may be, there's always a chance of panic faced with the real thing. Suppose it is the real thing. Aren't we wasting valuable time for it? Captain Turling. I see. Very well. Stand by. And God help us all. Bad, sir? Couldn't be worse, Sparks. A secondary Geiger reading confirms radiation leakage well above tolerable levels. What's to be done, sir? Sound emergency procedure alarm immediately. Yes, sir. And now activate the watertight doors and radiation shields. But, Skipper, we haven't given the men in the engine compartment time to clear it. I can't risk more contamination. Now do as I say. Yes, sir. 
What else can be done, sir? I recommend very fervent prayer. My name's Jimmy Webb, and I'm the communications officer aboard Her Majesty's nuclear submarine, Vigilant. She's the latest thing in submarine design, and equal to anything the Americans or Russians can produce. She may not be as big as the colossus of some 30,000 tons launched by the Russians, but at 18,000 tons, she's the best we've got. She's fast, lethal, and capable of remaining submerged for up to six months. Though I uh, hate to think what state the crew would be in if she did. Well, here we are, Sparks. Sealed order's about to be opened, and you'll have the privilege of being the first to know. Captain Mark Sterling, the vigilant skipper. At 50, he's young for the job. Well, Sparks, there's some good news and some bad news. In 72 hours, we're taking vigilant on her maiden cruise to the South Seas. You mean the Pacific? No, Sparks, unfortunately not. The South Atlantic. I see, sir. And bad news? We may not be back until after Christmas. That'll be a dampener on the lads. Oh, can't be helped, I'm afraid. It seems we're actually required to do something useful. Uh, am I permitted to inquire what it is, sir? Technically, no. Nevertheless, since you're bound to find out anyway, I can't see any harm in telling you. It seems there have been some inexplicable flashes in the South Atlantic recorded by American weather satellites. Inexplicable, sir? Inexplicable, yes. Unless. Unless what, sir? Well, I gather from these orders that both the Ministry of Defence and the CIA have reason to suspect that the South Africans are up to something down there. Oh, like what, sir? According to those who ought to know, these flashes could only have been produced by nuclear detonations of some magnitude. You mean the South Africans might have developed nuclear weapons? That's hardly my place to speculate on that, but um, logically, I'd say that if they've been able to produce the goods in so many other fields, and the best goods at that, is there any reason to suppose they'd fail with nuclear armaments? And what are we supposed to do? Start another war with them? <laughs> Not at all. By way of putting Britain's latest and finest nuclear submarine through her paces on a long cruise, we're to uh, cruise the South Atlantic in a given area to see if we can throw more light on what the South Africans, if it's the South Africans, are doing down there. I see, sir. And supposing they, or anyone else, are blasting away with nuclear bombs, what happens to us? Neither Her Majesty nor Her Admiralty explained that to me, Sparks. But I imagine some good could come of it. Such as, sir? Well, you wouldn't have to worry about not knowing all the words to Jingle Bells anymore, <laughs> would you? <laughs> the next 72 hours were spent in a flurry of dockside activity on an around-the-clock basis at Plymouth. It was my unenviable task to round up all crew members away on 24 and 48 hour passes and give them the good news. I uh, naturally omitted the bit about not making it back for Christmas. Eventually, the time ran out as the submarine filled up with provisions and her crew. And finally, our matte black, sleek, menacing and deadly form slowly drew away from the quay and headed out into the grey, choppy waters washing our native island. The last 72 hours have worn me out, Sparks. I'm going to get my head down for a while. So unless it's important, see that I'm not disturbed. Aye, aye, sir. Despite her 18,000 tons, Vigilant's living and working quarters were almost as cramped as on conventional submarines. 
From the communications room, the captain's quarters were reached through a door just followed to the transmitter, while above me was the bridge, the nerve centre of it all. Scattered throughout the rest of the missile-shaped killer ship were some ninety officers and ratings, all going about their appointed tasks. A trifle grim-faced at the prospect of being on the other side of the globe for Christmas. In need of rest, myself, I left the communications desk in the hand of my number two and eased myself into my bunk. The Vigilant boasted a cruise entertainment radio channel, run by off-duty personnel who fancied themselves as disc jockeys, some with warped senses of humour. And so, me hearties, you thought you'd be spending Christmas ashore in the arms of Kitten Kitten and anyone else handy, did you? Well, you should know the Admiralty will protect you from such sinful things as drink, woman and merrymaking. And here, just to take your mind off Christmas, snow scenes, holly, plum puddings and such like, is a little number expressly designed to help you. Like I said, Vigilant wasn't short on warped humour, but I nevertheless shared the sentiment. I drew the line, though, at three Christmas carols in a row and decided to go up onto the cunning tower deck, since we were still travelling on the surface. Might as well save a fresh air while the going's good. No sleep for you, either, Mark? No, sir. I thought I'd get a gulp or two of the real thing before the exercises begin. I don't blame you. Do we really have no idea how long we'll be away, Skip? I'm afraid not. I have orders to take us to a position in the South Atlantic and await further instructions. Oh, I hope we don't get into any sticky situations down there. What with an untried ship? The war's in the Middle East, not the South Atlantic. Anyway, now is not the reason why. I thought that only applied to the army. <laughs> don't you believe it, lad? Sterling? Captain, radar room. Unidentified object approaching from dead ahead collision course. Range 800 yards and closing rapidly. Request instructions. 800 yards? Whatever it is should be visible. Can you make anything out, Sparks? Nothing at all, sir. Range 750 yards, sir. Instructions, please. Hard to starboard. Full power. Hard to starboard it is, sir. That should take us out of its path. Probably a ruddy trawler running without lights. Captain Sterling. We have object now bearing to port, distance 500 yards. Yeah. Request instructions. Confounded idiots! 70 million pounds worth of submarine at risk because of some fools who don't know the rules of the channel! Still can't see anything, sir. Captain Sterling, his face set and grim, peered fruitlessly into the darkness. Somewhere out there was a boat, which perhaps even without knowing it, has thrown the most sophisticated warship ever created into panic. Captain Sterling, collision course confirmed. Request instructions urgently! Suddenly, there was a brief parting in the dense overhead cloud which allowed the pale winter moon to momentarily bathe the scene before us in its anemic light. There it is! Look! Just for a moment, before the clouds blotted out the moon again, I glimpsed what looked like a pleasure cruiser at full throttle cutting across our port bow. Unless she veered off her present course by at least 90 degrees immediately, I could see no way that Vigilant could avoid running her down and possibly being damaged herself. Captain, radar confirms collision imminent. Object now 300 yards. Instructions, please. Captain Sterling seemed unable to speak. He stared ahead as if mesmerised by the imminent disaster. His face was ashen. I gripped his arm. Captain, do something! Yes. Yes, the only thing we can do. Attention all crew. Stand by for emergency crash dive. Sound the alarm!
The skipper and I clambered down the hatches it began to close electrically. Two ratings swarmed up towards it from below to make good the seal manually. Vigilant, with all her complement of emergency stations, flooded her tanks and set her planes for crash dive. We reached the control room just as the flooded tanks and altered planes took effect. Her nose dropped away by perhaps as much as 50 degrees, and we had to grab hold of the console housing our radar and ASDIC to maintain our balance. Unbidden, the operator removed his headphones and turned up the ASDIC. The atmosphere was electrified with tension as those of us on the bridge waited rigid with unbridled fear to see whether disaster had been averted or not. We did it, Skipper. She's passing right overhead. Suddenly, brows were being mopped. Grins of relief were breaking out. The drama had passed. See to it that the incident is reported to Coastal Command, giving full details of position. Aye, aye, sir. What's our depth? After arresting the dive and levelling off, Vigilance Captain made his decision. Maintain our depth at 45 fathoms and resume original course. We're staying down here the rest of the way. Seems to me we'll be a damn sight safer. And so it was that Vigilant began her extended sea trials in earnest. She was put thoroughly through her paces, as were her crew, to ensure that she'd face any eventuality as the ultimate weapon she was. At the hitherto unheard-of speed of something in excess of 40 knots, Vigilant streaked silently through the chill depths of the Atlantic, heading for the position of the mysterious flashes. We reached the area at midnight on the 20th of December. At 300 hours, the Vigilant surfaced. By 400 hours, a good many of the officers and men were on her conning tower to watch the firing of four missiles in quick succession, which was the prearranged signal to be relayed by satellite back to the Admiralty that we'd arrived. It was quite a sight. Countdown begins. Eight. Seven. The faintest blue-gray wash in the sky heralded the dawn as the countdown was completed. Three. Two. One. Zero. Fire! done, Vigilant slid once more beneath the bleak Atlantic and awaited instructions. None came except to stand by and maintain position. We did, for five boring and uneventful days. It was early on Christmas Eve when the skipper inquired. Anything interesting coming through? Ah, well, there is for wardroom steward old Donahue. He's the father of an eight-pound, two-ounce baby boy. Well done, that man. (laughs) Anything else? Well, apart from half a dozen personal messages for the crew, no, sir. I don't know what the ruddy navy's coming to. Bridge? Yes, he is. It's for you, sir. Chief Engineer Roberts. Oh, well, thanks. Yes, Chief? Can we be sure about this? I see. When can we be certain? I'll remain here. Report as soon as you can. Something wrong, Skipper? I can't be sure for the moment, Sparks, but the Chief's just reported a warning signal from the engine room. Fire hazard, sir? Something more serious than that, I fear. Unless we have a simple malfunction of the automatic alarm concerned, we have a full-blown radiation leak from the reactor. Radiation leak? What, shall I sound the emergency procedure alarm, sir? No, not yet. However well-drilled a crew may be, there's always the risk of panic when faced with the real thing. But suppose it is the real thing, sir. Aren't we wasting valuable time? Sterling? It... I see. Very well. Stand by, and God help us all. Bad, sir? It couldn't be worse, Sparks. 
A secondary Geiger reading confirms radiation leakage well above tolerable levels. What's to be done, sir? Sound the emergency procedure alarm immediately. Yes, sir. Activate the watertight doors and radiation shields. But, Skipper, you haven't given the men in the engine compartment time to clear it. I've given them all the time I can afford. I can't risk more contamination. Now do as I say. Yes, sir. It was just on zero six hundred hours. I found myself thinking that this was one heck of a way to be spending Christmas Eve. All hands were now at their stations for emergency drill, with the exception of those still trapped in the engine compartment where the radiation leak had triggered the alarm. I'm going below to assess the situation. You get a mayday away immediately. I did. A serious view was taken of our plight because within minutes, the Admiralty was on direct voice contact, advising that a Royal Navy rescue vessel was already altering course to render assistance. That was the good news. The problem was that she was some 18 hours away. Some minutes later, the captain, his brow beaded with perspiration, returned to the bridge. Uh, we, we had any response? Yes, sir. Help's on the way. Eighteen hours delay, though. Huh? All we have to do is surface and wait there. That's no blasted good to us, Mr. Webb. We're completely without engine power. And that means we're unable to vent our tanks. You mean we... I mean we can't bring the ship to the surface. We can do nothing but remain suspended where we are, 45 fathoms down in the Atlantic, until we're either killed by radiation or lack of oxygen. Sterling, his ship and crew were in deep trouble in more ways than one. I went below to the main working level and threaded my way through frightened pale faces to where the lead-lined radiation shield barred my way from entering the contaminated engine room. I found it chattering that there was nothing we could do for its occupants. Then the captain's voice was heard throughout the ship. Attention all hands. This is your captain. As you are aware, we have a crisis on our hands. But there is no cause for panic. At present, we appear unable either to surface or, in fact, do anything which requires engine power. I can tell you that help is on the way. In the meantime, kindly expend as little energy physically as possible. I couldn't help noticing that his last remark caused a number of raised eyebrows. As I passed the officer in charge of the depth regulators, he looked at me and shrugged his shoulders. The depth gauge read a steady 45 fathoms. At least we weren't sinking. I made my way back to the bridge, where I found the captain nervously twirling three fingers worth of neat scotch while staring at the dormant instruments. Pour yourself a drink, Sparks. Might as well. He looked at me, and I could see defeat written all over his face. I couldn't understand it. He'd had to take drastic action, which might have sealed the fate of the men in the engine room, whose fates were sealed anyway from radiation. But for the rest, it seemed to me purely a waiting matter. It wasn't the first time rescue from a hidden sub had taken place after all. Maybe not, Sparks. The difference is that successful rescues take place where the oxygen hasn't run out. But the Vigilant produces its own, as well as fresh water, simply by breaking down seawater into hydrogen and oxygen. And we've provisions for more than six months. I don't understand. I can see that. Now, let me give it to you straight. We could produce oxygen and fresh water if we had power. The system works incredibly well, so long as the reactor does, too. But without it... Well, without it, we have only the air we're breathing. But 
That means... What it means is that in about 12 hours from now, unless the Admiralty can pull something out of the hat, we face a particularly hideous death from oxygen starvation. I suddenly understood the skipper's need for three fingers worth of scotch and help myself. What are the chances of anyone else picking up the Mayday? South Africans, for example. What good would it be? They're not equipped for this kind of situation. Ironic, isn't it, that this should happen on Christmas Eve? You're telling me. Robertson tells me we have around 12 hours worth of air left. That'll take us to the first hours of Christmas Day. I could think of better ways to spend it. Instructions were given to break out Christmas rations. Champagne, the works. The idea being to lull the men, hopefully, into a peaceful state, causing them to use less oxygen while we waited patiently, yet without hope, for a miracle. The ship was shut down. Only the dim glow from emergency lighting was in use. An eerie silence fell upon us, each man deeply involved with his own thoughts. The men knew the facts well enough by now, and it's an eternal credit to them and those who chose them that they kept their heads. The hours crept by. Three. Five. Eight. The air was now becoming fouler by the minute. Robertson had miscalculated. I, I don't think we... I don't think we have much longer, Sparks. Don't say that, Skipper. I dragged my oxygen-starved form to the transmitter and weakly punched out another mayday with what dwindling power was left in the ship's batteries. Don't waste your strength, Sparks. They... They know where we are. <laughs> they just can't get here in time. I painfully made my way down to the working deck with a vague notion of checking on the depth gauge. But I misjudged my reserves of strength and sank to my knees and slowly fell, wheezing for breath against a bulkhead. All around me, men were in a similar condition. And then I heard it. A single voice, barely above a whisper, began to sing. Suddenly I realised, looking at my watch, that Christmas Day was dawning. One by one, other voices picked up the carol until all who were able had joined in. Tears of frustration and irrational anger welled in my eyes. And then suddenly the now fervent voices were stilled by a frightening screeching whine which filled the ship. Drawn, anxious and expected faces turned toward me, but I could offer no comfort. My guess was the reactor was on the verge of blowing up, and all I could do and did was pray for a peaceful end. terrifying noise continued and now seemed to come from different parts of the sub. I had no way of knowing what was happening, but instinct made me stagger and grope my way back to the bridge, gasping every inch of the way for want of air. 
Suddenly, as I drove my aching, oxygen-starved body past the now-prone form of the depth controller, there came a sound of rending metal, a gush of water which was instantly replaced by a loud hissing. By now, I was prepared to disbelieve my senses, but within a few seconds, my ragged lungs confirmed that there was someone outside the sub, and it was now being pumped full of pure, sweet, life-giving air. I can't believe it, Sparks. The nearest British rescue vessel is still hours away. And he was right. But it didn't matter to us who our rescue was worse, so long as they succeeded. Within minutes, most of the crew had recovered sufficiently to report happenings in various parts of the ship. The sounds of divers in the regions of the vigilance planes and fins were heard, and shortly thereafter she began to make way. We're, we're moving, Sparks. They must be towing us. Anxious eyes were glued to the instruments. Very soon we found the vigilant gaining momentum and rising. Fifteen minutes later, we were on the surface. No time was wasted in releasing the massive bolts holding the hatch in place. Willing hands above forced it open, flooding us with fresh salt air and the first glimpse of our rescuers. You should have told us you were coming. We would have been here sooner. Once on deck, we found ourselves flanked by two medium-sized submarines and being towed by a powerful tug proudly flying South African colours. Allow me to introduce myself. Second Officer Harry von Bieren of the South African Navy at your service. ETA at Cape Town, where we might assist you with your reactor problems, is about, I would say, five hours from now. You, uh, you know about our problem? And your mission, Captain. There's very little we don't know about in this part of the world. But never mind that now. Let me be the first to wish you all welcome to South Africa and a very merry Christmas. High Adventure is produced by Henry Duffenthal. wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Time now for Rocky Jordan, brought to you today by Del Monte Tomato Products. far from the mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Café Tambourine run by Rocky Jordan. The Café Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against the backdrop of antiquity. Del Monte presents Rocky Jordan and this week's story, Adventure with Andrea. Andrea. 
remember reading about the earthquake in Ecuador that broke the first week in August. It was a big one. Killed a few thousand people and buried a couple of cities. Yeah, it was big, all right. I even felt the reverberations in Cairo, 8,000 miles away. It started the night I'd left Chris, my bartender, in charge of the tambourine because I had some business across town. When I got back about two and looked in the front door, I saw there was trouble inside. My bartender, Chris, was swinging from the ground at a big guy who was taking it all and delivering in turn. They moved from the side of the cafe to the center, turning over a table and chair. When the bottles began to break, I figured it was time to put a stop to it. So I moved in, but not before Chris buried his fist in the big guy's stomach and fell face down on a large suitcase. I guess I'm a little late. Oh, hi, Rock. What happened? I don't know. This guy moved in with his suitcase. Started up the stairs to your room. I said it was private, but he wouldn't take no. Who is he? Toby Barker's the name. Toby? Hiya, Rock. Oh, you know him, Rock? Yeah, surely knows me. Port Said, Algiers, Istanbul. Remember, Rock? I remember that when you left Cairo, you took my cash register with you. Yeah? Oh, that, yeah. What are you doing back here? Now, I'll tell you all about it, Rock, but let's go upstairs so I can clean up, huh? Toby wrapped a big paw around the handle of his suitcase, and we went up to my room. He washed up, came back into the bedroom, and flopped on the bed. That's when the conversation started again. Uh, it's good to see you again, pal. Been a long time, huh? Three years, four years? Something like that. You miss me? Not much. <laughs> Still sore about me picking up that loose change at your register? Six hundred dollars. It's not the money so much. I just don't like a guy with glue on his fingerprints. Well, Rock, that's why I'm back. To make amends. Six hundred dollars? Okay, six hundred it is. Uh, I'm a little short right now. Oh, yeah, sure. But, uh... Here's 200 on account. I'll give you the other four in a couple of days. Yes, sir, I'm a new man, Rocky. Turned over that leaf everybody talks about. Hey, see that suitcase there? Can't miss it. Mm -hmm. Samples. I'm a salesman. Kitchen utensils, can opener, strainers, potato scraper. Bring modern mechanics to the oppressed housewife in the Middle East. Why, they'll welcome me here with open arms. A new Caesar conquering Egypt with aluminum. You haven't lost any of your win. <laughs> uh, it's uh, going to be fun bunking with you for a couple of days, Rocky. You staying here? Oh, you wouldn't have it any other way, pal. <laughs> oh, Rock. Yeah. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you, you don't mention it around town that I'm back. I'd... That why you don't want a hotel? <laughs> uh, you know how it is, sport. A couple of debts, some people carrying grudges for a long time, and, uh, well, I'd just assume it wasn't newsed around that Toby Barker's in Cairo. Uh, you can keep a secret, huh, sport? Well, that's how it began. Part two started the next morning. About nine o'clock, I noticed a kid, 14 or 15, standing across the street, bouncing a ball up against a wall. At 11, he was still there, but his arm was tired, and he was just sitting on the curb. One o'clock, he was bouncing the ball again, but I could see his heart wasn't in it. What he was really doing was a watch job on the tambourine. Three o'clock, the kid was still there watching, and I was getting pretty curious. I moved out to talk to him, but when he saw me coming, he started to run. I took out after him. Slow down. I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to talk to you. He kept on running down the Sharia Hakkar with me after him. But on the corner, he ran into a fat lady carrying a basket of groceries. The kid in a bag of Brussels sprouts rolled on the sidewalk. Two seconds later, the fat lady was picking up her Brussels sprouts, and I was picking up the kid. Why does the boy not watch where he is going? Why did that look before he runs into innocent people carrying Brussels sprouts? All right, kid. Come on up on your feet. people. The way they raise their children. They raise them to knock over innocent people in the street carrying Brussels sprouts. Uh, he apologizes. Come on, kid. Step to the side here. I want to talk to you. Swear to me. Deja me ir. Deja me ir. All right, settle down. Deja me ir. No le dicen nada. 
Solamente estaba aquí afuera atendiendo mis propios negocios. ¿Ah? Suéltame, le dije. Uh, try speaking English. English, English. Pero, señor, no hablo inglés. No lo hablo. Then try speaking Arabic. Por favor, señor, no lo comprendo. Suélteme, por favor. You were watching my tambourine. Why? What gay kid? What's going on? No sé de qué hablo. Le dije que estaba atendiendo mis negocios. Suéltame, señor. Suéltame. All the kid could speak or would was Spanish. But when someone cases my place for a full day, I could figure something was up and I wanted to know just what. So I let the kid go, figuring to follow him. He wound me through a couple of streets and ended up at a small hotel called The Dynasty. He disappeared into room 212. A few seconds later, I knocked on the door. Open the door and you'll find out. Come in, Senor Jordan. We met? No, Senor, but I know of you. He's all right. Come in. Este es el hombre, hermano. Yo sé, Kiko. Haga el favor de dejarnos ahora. Yes. My brother, Kiko. He speaks nothing but Spanish. So I see. He has left us alone so we may talk. You know, I'm not sure whether he led me here purposely or I made it myself. It was not his intention to bring you here, but now that you are here, Senor Jordan... It is only right that I answer your questions. Something's going on, lady. Your brother's been staked out of my tambourine all day. It makes my customers nervous. We have no intention to make your customers nervous. We have no intention either to cause you concern, but in truth, something is going on. Who are you, anyway? My name is Andrea Dios. I'm new to your city. I have come with purpose. From where? South America. The country of Ecuador, the city of Ambato. Ecuador? There's been a lot about Ecuador in the newspapers, the uh, earthquake. Yes. I left shortly after that. Well, you've come a long way. But what's my tambourine got to do with it? Only that under its roof resides a strange man. What? Your guest, Toby Barker. Oh. I ask you, Senor Jordan, I ask you to send that man away. Why? He will bring you trouble. What kind of trouble? What does that matter? Trouble of a kind you will not like. I ask you, please, Senor, send him away. Send him out of your building. You, uh, you always carry a gun? What? That bulge in your purse isn't a bottle of cologne. I ask you, Senor Jordan, once again, send that man out from under your roof. Be wise and do as I say. There's something between the two of us that can wait no longer. Something between the two of us that soon must explode. <laughs> well, I had the feeling it was a simmering pot. Ingredients? One Toby Barker and a dame from Ecuador. It looked like I was going to be the one to get hit with a flying lid. I went back to the tambourine and spent a couple of hours getting ready for the supper crowd. Chris was racking up a few bottles behind the bar. My cook was scratching around the kitchen with a mix master. And I went into my office. Toby Barker was there looking out the window. Oh, hi, Rock. I didn't hear you come in. Looking for someone? Uh, yeah, Rocky. Yeah. A friend of mine's coming to see me here. I didn't think he'd mind. Uh, he's going to sign up for a large consignment of my kitchen utensils. Then I hit the road. This friend of yours, a woman? A woman? From Ecuador, named Andrea Rios. Andrea Rios? What'd you find out about her? Things get out. Yeah? Got a cigarette? Yeah. she the friend you're waiting for? No. What have you got to say about her? Oh, nothing, Rock. Just some dame. You know how it is. 
met her in Ecuador. In a little whirl. A little hard to shake, that's all. <laughs> you know how it is with women's sports. I know if they're chasing a man, they don't bring along their little brother. Oh? He's here too, huh? That's right. And she's got another little companion that spits lead. Yeah. She's the impetuous type. What is it, Toby? I told you, Rock. Just a little boy meets girl stuff. Nothing important. You're lying. No, Rock. No, really. Hey, look. Look, now, just forget about it, huh? I'll be out of your place in the morning. Listen, Toby, I'm not in the market for trouble. I run a restaurant here. I got a pretty good rep, and I don't want it messed up. If you've got a thing on with that girl, take it someplace else. Pal, if you don't... Come in. Bartender said that I would... Oh, Mr. Barker. Yes, uh, come on in, Shima. I've been waiting for you. I am most sorry, Mr. Barker. The traffic kept me. Hashim Bay, Mr. Jordan? Oh, most delighted, Jordan Bay. I have heard of you. Most of Cairo has. How do you do? Mr. Barker, I have little time. My client leaves the city soon. He's most anxious we consummate our dealings... Promptly. Oh, sure, Hashim. Uh, Rock, uh, you mind uh, stepping outside? You want me to leave my own office? <laughs> you don't mind, do you, Rock? For a pal? Uh, all right. I'll make it fast. I stepped out of my own office and Toby tripped the lock behind me. It was pretty clear that Toby was using my place for a rendezvous with Hashim and I wanted to know what it was all about. I pressed my ear up against the door, but what I heard was something I didn't expect. <laughs> I waited a moment until it sounded safe, then unlocked the door and moved inside. Both Toby and Hashim were hugging the floor, still very much alive. The bullets had come from outside. I moved to the shattered window and looked out. Scampering down the street was a long-legged dame with a flock of black hair. She was stuffing something back into her purse and it figured to be the gun. And when she went by a lamppost, I saw who she was. Andrea Rios, late of Ambato, Ecuador. <laughs> Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. If we should just happen to sneak over to the Joneses for a minute, I bet we'd find Mrs. Jones and her friend Betty talking in the kitchen. Honestly, Betty, I've never seen anything like it. Why, the way Ken polished up his plate was a caution. <laughs> That's wonderful. And you can surely thank your lucky stars for the magic combination, so to speak. <laughs> well, I'll agree with you on the magic part. The magic of Del Monte ketchup. I've never tasted such marvelous flavor. Really, Mary, you should try that more often. Why can't <laughs> That must have been quite a meal Mrs. Jones fixed. And ladies, chances are you'll find the family asking for more and bigger helpings, too, when you serve Del Monte ketchup. That tangy, rich tomato flavor really perks up low-cost foods, gives them a zestful flavor that satisfies those hearty appetites. Yes, Del Monte catsup has a distinctive flavor all its own, a flavor you'll like. So next time you make up the shopping list, include Del Monte catsup. It won't be long before you'll join Mrs. Jones in saying... Del Monte catsup is wonderful. I've never tasted such marvelous flavor. And now we take you back to Cairo and tonight's Rocky Jordan story, Adventure with Andrea. Well, I watched Andrea around a corner. When I turned back from the window, Hashim Bey had already picked himself up and was scampering out of my place. And Toby Barker was dusting off his suit, quite relieved that the bullets landed in my wall. 
I decided I wanted more words with a South American bombshell who was turning my office into a skeet shoot. I caught up with her back at her hotel room, and I don't think I was too gentle as I snatched her purse away from her and opened it. What are you doing? I'm a gun collector, lady, and I want yours. I've got it. Uh Uh-huh. Three bullets fired, and they're all on my wall. I missed. I'm a little touchy about guns going off in my place. I told you. I told you, I told you, I told you. Get that man out from under your roof. Maybe I don't want to. Maybe he's a friend of mine. I don't like being told what to do with my friends. What are you screaming about? I miss. Listen, Miss Ecuador, maybe you don't understand. We got laws in Cairo. Assault with a deadly weapon, intent to kill. And we got jails, too. And they got plenty of room. Do not just stand there. Call the police. Maybe I will. Call them, call them, call them. What do I care? All right. What are you waiting for? Get me Captain Sam Sabaya, Cairo police. Call them, call them. What does it matter now I miss? I talked to Sam and he said he'd be right down. Then I hung up and turned back to look at Andrea. She had slumped down on the couch and was beginning to cry. Ah, some dames can turn it on like a water faucet and use it to get things their own way. But this was different. This was real. At least it looked like it. It wasn't a loud cry. It was soft, but tight, like it was bound up in ropes. And it was a deep cry. It made a fellow wonder. After a while, she came out of it. Senor Jordan. Yeah. What are the chains, huh? You won't be fond of it. I did not suppose I would. Do you uh, have anything you want to tell me? As much I could say. I'm a good listener. But to what avail, Senor Jordan? I have tried to kill a man. I have followed him halfway around the world with one. There's a reason. Reason. But this reason for one person is not always for another. Try me. I'm living in Amato, in Ecuador. My father is a most revered and wonderful man. He's the proprietor of a fine art shop containing beautiful and expensive relics of early Ecuadorian culture. Then I bring to live with us a man whom I love and have married. He is a man whom my father considers a spoiler he does not approve. But he bends to the wish of his daughter whom he loves very much. The new husband is dead. As time goes, I hear that my husband is disreputable. I refuse to believe then the moment comes when I can no longer shut my eyes to what is about me. It comes when the earthquake comes to Ecuador. The buildings of Mavato are shattered. The people are buried in the rubble. The children scream for their mothers and misery is all over. It is then, as the buildings quiver and the stones fall, that in front of my eyes, unaware I am there, my husband kills my father with a blow on the head. Still... And then disappears. The law can do nothing. First it is troubled by the misery of the earthquake. Then it sees no proof. As far as it is concerned, my father was killed by falling rubble. My daughter knows differently. The daughter saw. Yet she has no proof. Now the burden of justice lies with her. That's a lot of story. How do I know it's true? Well, what's your plan now, Andrea? It depends most strongly upon the words you ordered to Captain Sabaya. 
Yeah. But in fairness, I must say to you, though justice has failed once, it may still be attempted again. <laughs> yes? Oh, come in, Sam. Called me, Jordan? Yeah. I came as promptly as I could. Well, what do you wish of me? Uh, Sam. Yes, I'm waiting, Jordan. Andrea, will you do one thing for me? Don't do anything for a couple of hours. Give me a chance to think a little bit. I've waited so long. I can wait a little longer. Jordan, would you come? Come on, Sam. Uh, outside. I'll see you soon, Andrea. Jordan, I'm a most busy man. I, I receive an urgent telephone call from you requesting me to arrive as promptly as possible at room 212 of the Dynasty Hotel. Yeah, I know, sir. This I do. When I arrive, I find you and a beautiful woman alone in a room. The atmosphere most dense. I know, Sam. I see that you are disturbed, that the lady has been crying, that a gun lies on the bed. And when I ask of you the trouble, you tell me nothing. I'm sorry, Sam. Later, I'll tell you all. Jordan. Beware that you are not carrying too much upon your shoulders. Beware that you are not making decisions which are beyond your province. Yes, Sam. I'll watch it. I left Sam and went back to the tambourine, trying to figure all the while if what Andrea had told me was true. I went up to my room. Toby wasn't there, but Chris was. Oh, hi, Rock. Just picking up a few of Toby's empty bottles. What's the matter? You look like you've been through an egg beater. Where's Toby? He left a few minutes ago. He had a phone call. Said he'd be back soon. Ah. Uh-huh. What are you looking for? Suitcase. You take it with him? No, it's over there behind the couch. Uh, take a look inside. He said there's nothing in it but his samples. Kitchen equipment. Well, let's find out, huh? Now, that's kitchen stuff, Rocky. Orange squeezer, knives. Hmm. Let's look at the bottom layer. What is it, Rocky? Looks sort of odd, doesn't it? It's filigree. Gold, silver, or platinum. They're Ecuadorian ornaments of some sort and pretty expensive. I don't get it, Rock. What's it mean? It means part of her story's true, anyway. Whose story? I'll tell you about it later, Chris. Look, uh, Toby will be back pretty soon to sell this stuff to Hashim. You'll have to do something for me. I want to see a lady from Ecuador. I told Chris what I wanted him to do, then went back to the dynasty to find Andrea. The desk clerk said she'd gone across the street to get a sandwich. I found her munching on some devil egg and sipping black coffee. You came back sooner than I expected. I got an answer sooner than I expected. What do you mean? I went through Toby Barker's suitcase. Oh, gold and platinum filigree, eh? My father's. That's right. Worth quite a bit of money. 50000 to to $100,000, depending on the buyer. Even now, Toby is trying to close the deal with an Egyptian named Hashim. Then can we leave the contract? I have not much time. Andrea. Yes? You tip his hand. Sooner or later, he'll tip his hand. Will he? I'm trying to tell you to lay away your gun. I know that. It's not worth it, Andrea. If he did what you said he did, he's still not worth your killing. You do not have to go on. My mind is made up. It has worked within me for so long that there is nothing for me to do but to kill him. Andrea. He is an evil man the law cannot touch. He killed my father. And that death is laid at my feet. Rocky, I have no other course but to do what I have planned. She's 
sprung up out of the chair, pulled away from me, and moved out of the place fast. In a minute, she was lost in the crowd on the boulevard. And I found myself wanting to keep her from killing more than anything else. But it takes two to make a killing. The one with the intent and the victim. If one couldn't be stopped, maybe the pigeon could be removed. I figured I could beat her back to the tambourine, so I called a cab, told him to step on it. A little while later, he dropped me off just in time to see Hashim Bey scurry out of my place with Barker's sample case in his hand. He was moving toward a black sedan on the corner, I suppose, to his waiting client. But I was interested in Toby Barker. I found him in the kitchen, a roll of bills in his hand. Oh, hiya, Rock. <laughs> We're just going to leave this for you. The rest of the 600 I owe you. Old Hashim and I closed the deal. I turned over my uh, kitchen utensils to him, and he turned over his cash to me. You better start moving, Toby. I said, you better start moving. I'm going. <laughs> What's the big hurry? Did Hashim open the suitcase before he took it? No, there wasn't much time. He had someone wait. What? You'd better move. More reasons than one, pal. You're turning into a rabbit in a greyhound race. <laughs> what are you talking about? Andrea's on her way over here, and she's got a new clip for a gun. Oh? <laughs> Thanks, Rock. Thanks, pal, for warning me. I'm not thinking about you. Well, then I don't I... want her to kill you, that's why. I don't think you're worth it. You don't want her to... Oh, no. <laughs> well, there's one for you. <laughs> oh, that's rich, pal. The rock going soft from my wife. Now back door, Toby. Use it. <laughs> sure, sure, Rock. I'm going. Oh, hey, wait. What about your money? Forget it. I don't like the way you got it. Your debt's canceled. <laughs> Suit yourself. Go on now. Make it fast. There's a plane for Athens in 30 minutes. So long, soft touch. I'll use your 400 to have... At the shot, Toby grabbed his stomach, and that's when the rest of them came. He toppled over in his face, and by the time he hit the ground, he was dead. I looked up the alley to see where the shots had come from. All I saw was a figure standing there with a gun in her hand. Andrea Rios. And it looked just like it was mission accomplished. <laughs> In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. When you get right down to it, folks, the best cooking authorities are you homemakers. You ladies who, day in and day out, have to turn out appetizing meals and yet stay within the budget. That's quite a problem, as you know. Here's how one experienced homemaker, Mrs. J.H. Tandro of Oakland, California, solves the problem. She's a Del Monte enthusiast, been cooking for 24 years, and she said... I've solved the problem of meals with appetite appeal the easy way, with Del Monte tomato sauce. Well, I've been a cooking fan for a long time, and Del Monte has always been a staple on my pantry shelf. You see, I make a great many stews, meat pies, and fish dishes, and I just can't imagine them without that good, rich tomato flavor. And Del Monte tomato sauce is so easy to cook with, anybody can use it. Thank you, Mrs. Tandro. Yes, Del Monte tomato sauce is so easy to use. Just pour it over and cook it in. Then sit back and enjoy a real flavor treat. For tomato flavor at its best, buy the original tomato sauce. Buy Del Monte. Back now to Rocky Jordan. <laughs> Well, that was the picture. Toby Barker cut down by a flood of bullets and standing up the alley from him, Andrea Rios, a gun in her hand. It had been a long haul for her, but it looked like she'd finally done it. As I saw her leaning against a building, beginning to sob, I felt sick. I hadn't been able to get the pigeon away in time. 
Well, I started up toward her. As I got closer, I could hear her sob. They cut into me like knives, and I began to feel sorry for everybody who got into something they had no way out of. Andrea? I, I heard him groan. I saw him grab his stomach. Come on now, get hold of yourself. He fell forward on his face. Andrea. Did I do it, Rusty? Did I finally do it? Give me the gun. And now that it is done, am I more happy? Andrea. Andrea, listen to me. This gun hasn't been fired. All the bullets are still in the clip. You didn't kill him, Andrea. This is it not your... Sam! Since I answered your telephone request at the Dynasty Hotel, I've been keeping a close watch on you. Uh, I don't get it. You didn't cut Toby down. I've been outside the tambourine. A moment ago, Miss Rios came and waited by that lamppost. Then I saw this man, Toby Barker, emerge by your back door. I saw Miss Rios reach into her purse for a gun. I moved to stop her, but before I could, shots came from another direction. Mr. Barker was killed by a man named Hashim Bey. Hashim Bey? Sergeant Greco and I have apprehended him. Even now, he is in the police car. He has said that he killed Barker because Barker had double-crossed him. Oh, uh, Jordan, of this suitcase, you recognize it? Sure, that's Toby Barker's sample case. It, it originally had the gold and platinum filigree in it. Originally, yes. That is what Hashim paid for, but what he got was... Well, observe. I shall open the suitcase. You see? The original contents, the filigree, had been removed. And it had been replaced truly with kitchen utensils. And all of them are stamped with the mark of the... Cafe Tambourine. Jordan, would you please explain to me when you pull the switch? Well, Chris had done what I had asked him to do. Remove the filigree and replace it with plain old utensils for my kitchen. I was trying to save the filigree for Andrea Rios because I knew Toby was getting ready to pedal it right away. I had no idea the switch would make Hashim throw bullets at Toby. But it did, and, well, that was that. I turned the filigree over to Sabaya, and after the inquiry, it would go back to Andrea Rios. That's about all, except that Andrea got her justice without putting her own foot in it. Later, Andrea and her brother Kiko went back to Ecuador. Well, who knows? Maybe someday I'll take a trip over there myself. the finest in tomato flavor. Enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte catsup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and canned tomatoes. And Del Monte tomato juice. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Rocky Jordan, written by Larry Roman and Gomer Cool, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jay Novello as Sam Sabaya, and is produced and directed by Cliff Howell with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arunt. Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine run by Rocky Jordan. Same time, same station. And the story is The Nile Runs High. <laughs> If you haven't tried Del Monte pickles, you don't know how really good a pickle can be. Sweet pickles, sour pickles, dill pickles, every kind you like, and every one crisp and full of flavor. Del Monte pickles, 
more good products from the brand that always puts flavor first. Larry Thor speaking. Rocky Jordan is presented over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's the Relic Radio Show for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find more from High Adventure, Rocky Jordan, past episodes of this podcast, all the other podcasts, and our Shoutcast stream, all at relicradio.com. Don't forget to donate while you're there if you'd like to help support this and all of the shows and the Shoutcast stream. Thanks again to those who have. Thanks for joining me this week. Be back again next Tuesday with another hour of the Relic Radio Show.